What I want to focus on is decision-making by lawyers as leaders. Part of modernization has got to be in how we make decisions. In short, how do we modernize our thinking in order to support a client operating at the speed of information? This is about how we lead our legal organizations. This is about how we as lawyers make decisions when we're dealing with imperfect. You can define that as too little, too much, or even worse, deliberately false information. At the end of the day, it shapes the way we advise our clients. You're listening to Episode 9 of Battlefield Next with Major J.J. Wallemeyer and Major Jason Coffey. The preceding clip was Brigadier General Joseph Berger, the Commanding General of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the premier training, education, and analysis institution for military law, discussing the topic of the episode, Modernizing Our Thinking. We join the episode, already in progress. So, sir, the genesis of this discussion was lessons you learned from your time as a legal advisor and soft assignments. How does that experience tied back to decision-making in an army in transition? So, Jason, what surprised me the most about those units, and again, I'm speaking specifically from my experience about the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment and then the Joint Special Operations Command, and really observing the downtrace units from each of them, what really surprised me the most was the speed of the decision-making cycle. Now, In all fairness, those organizations have a bit of an unfair advantage. They have a focused mission, and they're incredibly well-resourced. So if you were to take a typical organization, there's going to be some bureaucratic inertia to a decision-making cycle, right? We can talk about paralysis by analysis. We can talk about organizations that are really good at just admiring the problem. But when push comes to shove in a larger organization, and it comes time to actually try and solve big problems, hard problems, more often than not, that's when bureaucratic interests and parochial concerns and simple organizational inertia really start to impede the process. So what those soft units had that gave them an advantage was all of that was pushed aside. Now, that's not to say that there weren't some degree of parochial interests and that there wasn't some degree of bureaucratic inertia. Any organization has that. But it really is as minimized as possible inside those formations. And so the speed of that decision-making cycle is truly what surprised me. Now, why does that matter? Well, if you have an ability to try something out, learn from it, and then try it again with the modifications made from the first lesson, you learn something, you get better. But if you can do that multiple times in a tight time period, you get better that much more quickly, and you get that much better. So what's a good example of that? A great example of that is if you go back to pre-surge in Iraq, and you look at from the initial time in Iraq till the height of the surge, and the number of operations that some of our more elite units were conducting in a single period of darkness. Initially, that might have been one or two. It might have been based on days of intelligence. But by the time they had done that enough, they got to the point that in a single period of darkness, they could turn multiple iterations. They could capture intel off one objective. They could capture lessons learned about enemy TTPs. And they could turn all of that back into their decision-making cycle about hitting the next target. And what did they need to do to hit the next target? And I'm not going to get into tactical details here and talk about that, but it's about a mindset. It's about a resourced mindset focused on a problem, 
that has to tackle that problem repetitively in close sequence that allows the loop, if you will, to spin more quickly. And as long as the loop is spinning deliberately, if it's spinning deliberately and more quickly, you are learning more quickly and you are implementing and you are getting better faster. And that's really the goal of it. So part of this whole thought about modernization of our thinking gets to the point of how as attorneys, how as lawyers, how as judge advocates, can we think in a more accelerated fashion? So, sir, what was it about the speed of the OODA loop decision-making cycle that so impressed you? So built into any rapidity of decision-making has got to be a willingness to assume some risk because you are going to make mistakes, right? And as long as commanders are willing to underwrite risk, subordinates will take it and subordinates will get better because they will push the envelope. And it's easy to say, oh, leaders have to mitigate, have to underwrite risk. What's that mean? What's it really, really mean? Well, when we talk about that, what they're doing is they're underwriting failure. They're accepting that there is a certain degree of failure that is in fact acceptable to them as a commander. And then they're allowing the subordinates to do it again in the hope that they're implementing those lessons. Now, there are a couple things when we talk about acceptable venues for failure, right? When we're talking about our soldiers' lives, that's not a place where we can take unmitigated risk. We can take mitigated risk, and we do in our profession all the time. When we get through our legal advice and we talk about legal advice as attorneys, that's not a place where we can afford to take risk. We have to get that right. But there are enough other things about our formations, whether it's a question of organizational structure, whether it's a question of prioritization of resourcing within the organization, whether it's a question of how we're going to tackle a longstanding organizational problem. Those are the kind of things, those things for us as judge advocates that are outside the advice, outside the provision of legal advice, that are problems that have to be solved, that if we allow folks to try different solutions, if we encourage creativity, and that's the benefit of this, because if you encourage creativity, folks will come up with more and more ideas, and that'll, again, continually feed that loop. Okay, sir, but what would you say to those who caution against confusing energy with progress? No, that's a, that's a great question, right? And so there's a couple things there. First of all, change is easy. Progress, on the other hand, is hard, right? And that sense of energy and activity is in and of itself progress is, is simply misplaced. So what you really have to be looking at is you have to think about, I think, two things here. You have to think about, again, how do you underwrite that risk? And then second of all, when you're talking about not confusing energy with progress, you have to have a process. And that's why we talk about something like the OODA loop, because it provides a structure and a process to ensure you're not just literally spinning your wheels, but rather you're focused. So you think about the different stages. You think about the stage to observe, to orient, to decide, and to act. So we can take an example. And let's take a recent example of our transition here at the Legal Center and School at the beginning of the pandemic in shifting over to distributed learning. Why do I start with this example? Because it's relevant to all of us in uniform 
and certainly more broadly, I think, across our entire society. Who would have thought that Zoom as a noun would become almost an everyday verb in our conversations these days? But it has. A software platform most knew little about outside of education and some business structures uh, now is part of our daily parlance. And so that's a significant change. So that's why I'm going to use this example, because I think it is one that even if you're not in uniform, you can relate to. So what we had was essentially, in Army terms, a change of mission. On a Friday afternoon, the decision was made to switch to distributed learning. That is, telelearning for everybody else. We looked around at what was available as a platform, and DOD did not have a viable platform. So we looked at what the industry standard was, and in education, the standard was Zoom. So we purchased some off-the-shelf commercial licenses for the commercial version of Zoom, and between Friday and Monday, managed to switch from resident, in-person, in-classroom education to distributed learning without a hiccup. And we did that for our LLM program, for our graduate course, and with one additional day, we did that with our basic course as well. No small task. What it meant for us was unbroken continuation of our mission, our underlying mission to educate and train and to be the premier institution in DOD for legal education and training. But we had to constantly reevaluate that decision because as we learned pretty quickly, Zoom had some pretty significant security concerns. So how did we mitigate? Well, we looked around at the tools we had we observed the environment in which we were operating. So everything we were doing was open source. Nothing we were doing was for official use only. Nothing was classified, right? It was true, pure education. The best example we like to use is if we had had a Chinese delegation at the center in school during that time, we would have let them sit in the back of the classroom and hear the block of instruction. So if they were hearing it digitally through a hacking, not a problem. That said, we still need to protect the integrity of our system. So we leveraged the immediate tools we had. We used passwords, we used waiting rooms, we used randomly generated meeting ID numbers, right? All of those things that help prevent hackers from breaking into or Zoom bombing, another verb that has evolved, your sessions. Then we realized, hey, there's a better methodology out there. Zoom for government, a U.S.-only instance of the program, but that required a contracting action, that required a different funding stream. And so simultaneously, while working with the Army staff to make them aware of what we were doing, because very quickly, Zoom became prohibited for government purposes, and with good reason. If you were using it for a sensitive issue, we were not. We were using it for education. So we found the balance between the two. We kept headquarters army informed about what we were doing. We looked again, observed where we were in the environment, oriented ourselves to our goals, mission accomplishment, remaining the premier institution, right? And what was the standard of practice across the community of practitioners? Made a decision to move to a different platform, in that case, Zoom for government, and then executed. Now, 
different platforms, different capabilities, different challenges. So we were right back into that loop again, now reassessing our pre-existing TTPs and best practices to ensure that we would ultimately maximize the new platform. So that's how the loop works. And that for us is a great recent example of what we did. Most notably, I think, and the thing I'm most proud of this team for was the fact that we executed that at speed. And that's part of what drove me to this line of thought for this discussion. We executed at speed, and what that allowed us to do was really have almost zero interruption to our education and training of our professional military education pipeline, the critical lifeblood of our Army and the way we ensure our clients get a new generation of best-trained judge advocates to advise them across the formation. The rest of the Army, frankly, took weeks to come up online, to transition satellite ILE, to transition basic courses and other resident PME. We got it done in a weekend. We modified subsequent to that. We kept adjusting and we kept changing because we wanted to keep getting better. I wasn't faced with a number of resource constraints. The good news was all the money we were saving on TDY, we were able to dump into problem solving here. So through a quick reallocation of resources and a reprioritization of resources, we were able to move at a cadence and a speed that allowed us to do that. So, sir, how does the OODA loop tie into Mission Command? So Mission Command is really at its core about trust. And if you're going to speed up your decision-making process, you have to delegate decision-making to the lowest possible level. What we know is that in large organizations where decision-making becomes more and more centralized, decision-making simply slows down. We add more, from an Army perspective, we add more levels of staffing, and there is a greater process added to it. So if you want the greatest speed in decision-making with the most knowledge at the point of decision, then you delegate. You delegate authority. But in order to delegate authority, you've got to trust. So how do you get there? Well, you have to begin by communicating. If your folks understand what your intent is, if they understand what the end state looks like, if everybody shares the same vision, then you're halfway there because you're not trying to explain that. Once they know that, once they have bought into that, when you push decisions down, their decision-making process is going to lead them to that end state. But if you've not communicated that, they don't know where they're headed. So if you communicate and if you trust and if you manifest that trust through delegation to the lowest possible level, you can speed up the decision-making. And that's the point about the loop and mission command. It really requires that key level of aggressive delegation. You have to deliberately ask yourself, is this something only I can do at my level? Or is this something somebody can do a level below me? And there's an old adage that says, delegate to the lowest possible level and then delegate one more level down. Depending on the risk associated, some commanders are or are not going to be willing to take that risk. That's part of the process. But mission command is tied to trust. Trust is manifested 
through the delegation of authority to exercise that mission command. Sir, one of the things you mentioned when you were discussing mission command was that there's going to be a certain level of aggressive aggressiveness in the decision making uh, in the decision making process. When it comes to aggressiveness, there's going to be also there's going to be delegation to the the lowest possible level of your subordinates. When you do that, there's going to be some instances of failure. Could you talk a little bit about how leaders can underwrite failure by subordinates? Risk and failure are simply inextricable. As I think about it, I think back to an engagement I had with my boss late one night. I was advising a three-star client, and we disagreed on the policy piece. The law was clear, uh, but his desired course of action fell into that lawful but awful category that as lawyers and staff officers, we have an obligation to inform our clients about. And after some back and forth, and he entertained me without dismissing me, uh, he simply looked at me and said, Joe, I get paid to take risks. And that's what leaders do. And when they're comfortable with it, they can do it more quickly and they do it more willingly. Our, our Army doctrine reminds us that at the end of the day, we are asking soldiers to risk their lives to accomplish the missions we assign to them. So as leaders, we've got to be comfortable with risk. If we're expecting our soldiers to be comfortable with it, we've got to be. You know, there's a famous line from Apollo 13 uh, that's credited to Gene Krantz, who was working at NASA, and he says, failure is not an option. Well, when it comes to our legal advice, I'd have to agree, failure is not an option. But when it comes to things outside that niche sphere of the specifics of our legal advice, failure has to be an option. Learning organizations can only learn when they get something wrong. Because as a general rule, I think as humans, we find our scar tissue, whether figurative or real, comes from the things we got wrong. I think many of us could cite to examples of poor leadership that informed what we think are positive leadership traits in us by trying to do the opposite just as easily as we can to mirroring those positive leadership traits we've observed. All of those are elements of failure. All of those are aspects and pieces and descriptors of failure as a concept. So how do you do it as a leader? What do you do? Well. As a leader, you've got to let your people be creative. And when your people are creative, they're going to do some things sometimes that you would look and think, that's not how I would do it. And you know what? That's a great thing to be telling yourself. If you find yourself with a team and you find yourself sitting back thinking, not how I would do it, and it's not something you've specifically done before under the same fact set and you know how it's going to play out, then let them try. First of all, they might come up with a better solution and everybody wins. That would be success. But they might fail. And what they'll learn in that failure can be just as beneficial longer term, if not more so, than the simple turn of success. Why? Because they'll start to figure out, what did I miss? What did I not think about? What did I overlook in the operational environment? What are the second and third order effects I didn't think about? And so when it, it is when we fail and when we take the time after failure to stop 
and reflect again. The loop provides us a process. It's not the be all end all. It's not the only one, but it gives you a framework for thinking. When we stop and think about our failures and analyze our failures and then move to fix them in a timely manner to see if we can get it right the next time, that's how as leaders we underwrite failure to build success. Because I truly believe success is built on not only success, but I think you can get, whether you want to describe it as incremental or geometrically increasing levels of success, as much out of failure as you can out of anything else. Sir, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the, the COVID-19 pandemic. As we record this podcast episode, we're in the middle of May and the Army and the nation as a whole has been dealing with the pandemic and reacting to it for two, three, four months. What are some of the lessons that you think we can draw from the current operating environment that the arm the army finds itself in. So I'll tell you, right in I think the biggest one for the army goes exactly to what we've been talking about today. Forbes magazine recently published an article entitled Early Lessons from the US Army's Campaign to Conquer COVID-19. And it reinforces what we're talking about. One of the identified key findings was don't wait to make hard decisions. You're gonna have to make decisions based on imperfect information. Why do I highlight that one out of all of the ones uh, that they picked? I highlight that because in the time of uncertainty, people clamor for certainty. They clamor for particulars, but they clamor for certainty. Uncertainty creates stress. Certainty, as a general rule, relieves that stress. And so, whereas a leader, you can afford to make a decision, that gets people moving in a direction and puts a mark on a wall, you've alleviated stress and you've motivated your folks. So not waiting to make hard decisions, making a hard decision based on imperfect information is really one of the biggest lessons that I've had reinforced. We have to remember though that as leaders, you've gotta have a certain degree of humility. We're gonna find out again, we go back to the lesson and the discussion about failure. We're gonna get some of that wrong. And as leaders, we have to show that we can accept we, we got something wrong and can adjust. And so, in a way, it circles us right back to our previous discussion. How as a leader do I underwrite failure? I do it by taking risk myself, by identifying when I fail, and then by adjusting and not reinforcing failure, right? Don't pile bad news on top of bad news. Figure out what you did wrong and fix it. One of the other things that ties to that, that ties to decision-making and information flow uh, that really hit home with me during this pandemic has been the way stress increases at Echelon as you go down. Certainly, senior leaders are going to be privy to more information. They're going to be privy to ongoing planning. They might have a better sense of the direction things might be headed from an organizational perspective. Um, and that information may give the senior leader a greater degree of comfort but that doesn't always transmit down. So stress at Echelon is an incredibly, incredibly important concern. How did I get after it? How do we try to continue to get after it? Open communication. I've been honest with my formation. I have told them, look, I'm gonna kill the rumors when I hear them, if I know they're a rumor. 
And if I don't have the facts, I'm not going to reinforce any of it. But I'm also going to tell you, I don't have the facts. I'll come back to you when I do. Clear, honest, sometimes brutally honest communication helps address that stress at Echelon. And then this pandemic has reinforced for me what we as an Army do. And that's we accomplish the mission and we take risks to do it. So living in this COVID environment includes a certain degree of risk. Making progress in this COVID environment demands we accept a certain degree of risk. Yes, we should mitigate the risk as much as we possibly can, but we still have to assume some risk. And again, if as leaders our subordinates see us assume that risk, they understand that they too can take risk and can do so with a sense that will underwrite their failure. Sir, I see we're we're running close on time on this particular episode of the podcast. And before we go, I just wanted to see if you have any closing thoughts for our audience. You know, so history is a great teacher. History and education help prepare us for the unknown. Training prepares us for the known. And through this pandemic, we've had to do a little bit of both. But I look back to some comments made uh, in 1914 by then Colonel John Menashe, an Australian colonel, as he headed uh, off to Gallipoli. He had a hundred comments that he sent to his subordinates, and he described them as a hundred hints for company officers and admonished all of them not only to learn them, but to impart them upon their subordinates. And the 52nd of those is it is often better to act quickly, decisively, and energetically upon a provisional plan than to lose time in perfecting your plan by prolonged consideration. Any plan or action is better than none at all. And that really, I think, for me, and I hope for our listeners, is the takeaway today. Focused energy bound to a process that allows you to assess it when done, but moving out on an azimuth with a certain cadence is far better than simply sitting around and continuing to admire a problem. Inertia feeds inertia. Momentum feeds momentum, right? As lawyers, we can cite those as laws of physics and not the law, but it's just as powerful. And it's just as important for us as leaders, whether or not we're lawyers, to understand that. Well, sir, thank you very much for your comments here today on the Battlefield Next podcast. Before you go, one of the things that we like to get from the individuals we interview are book recommendations. Are there any book recommendations that you have for our audience, uh, whether or not they're related to what we discussed, that you think might be worth their time? JJ, thanks. Uh, as you know, I love to read and I love to talk about books, so I'll take this one and run with it for a minute. I'll give you three today. Three different buckets of books, if you will. The first one is by a guy named Eric Barker. It's called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And the thing I want to highlight in there is there's a great discussion within the book about filtered versus unfiltered leaders. A filtered leader being someone who rose up through the ranks and an unfiltered leader being, in the author's words, somebody who came in through the window. Now, 
The Army, as a quintessential hierarchical organization, requires leaders to come up through the ranks. So to a certain degree, we are all filtered leaders. But the question for us is, at time of great challenge, at time of significant change, are we going to miss an opportunity by not trying to climb through a different window and try something different? And so there's a great discussion in there about the tension between organizational values, loyalty to the organization, having grown up in an organizational culture, being the company man or woman, if you will, and being able to capitalize during times of crisis, transition, or opportunity. So barking up the wrong tree. Great read. The second one I'd hit on uh, is one that I've been toying around with for a while now, and it's called Why We Write. The co-editors, Steve Leonard and Randy Brown, put together a collection of short essays on writing about war. And in fact, they even talk about podcasts in that context. And one of the short essays is about putting together a podcast. But I'll tell you, the book is less about the topic war and more about the act, writing, about whatever your passion is. I found myself pulling out a clean notebook as I read so I could capture thoughts on a wide spectrum of things that the authors inspired me to potentially write about. And so I've got that notebook sitting on my desk, and I open it from time to time. I look back, think about what I read, think about what I was inspired to do at the moment, and try to build on those thoughts. Some of those are reflective, some of those are prospective, but all of which challenge us intellectually. And I think certainly as leaders, we owe that to ourselves and we owe that to our formation. The last book's really an easy one, given the current pandemic. It's Laura Spinney's book, Pale Rider. It's one of a number of books that have been written about the Spanish flu of 1918 and how it changed the world. From my perspective, the best written of those so far about the pandemic. It has a strong focus on the science and applying what we've learned in the 100 years since to better understand that pandemic in hindsight. And it gives us some tools for looking forward. Fascinating discussion in there about the impact of the Spanish flu on some limited number of children. And as we look now at the evolving pediatric inflammatory syndrome and those things where young, healthy children who, by any other measure, should have no reaction to this pandemic, to this virus, are absolutely finding themselves critically ill. So what's old is new, and what's new is old. As we stop and think about the importance of reading, we know that not all readers are leaders, but our shared history tells us that all leaders are, in fact, readers. You know, retired Marine Corps General and former SEC Def Jim Mattis famously wrote that by reading, you learn through others' experiences is generally a better way to do business, especially in our line of work, where the consequences of incompetence are so final for young men and women. America trusts us with our greatest treasure, her sons and daughters. We owe it to them to be as best prepared as we can possibly be to lead. And in the individual domain of intellectual development, we do that through reading. So always glad to talk about a book. Great, sir. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. We hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you. JJ, I look forward to it. Jason, thanks. That's it for the episode. 
For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JAGFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible.